Hello and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua. I am your host. And today's episode is coming back from a little bit of a break. I apologize for that, but thank you for sticking with me. The last full episode that I did was about the future and now, and the future is now. And it was an overview of the views of Vin Armani, Michael Vlejos, Julianne Romanello, and Allison McDowell. And I took all of their ideas, their theories, their perspectives, condensed them all down into one episode, and it was all about where we are and where we are going with technology, with the state, with the elite class and various agendas and all of these kinds of things and what that is uh, heading us towards, what that leads us to. And so that's where we left off. Now what I want to do is pick up on that theme and get into more about what that leads us to. And the main thing that leads us to is technocracy. And so I want to talk a little bit about technocracy as well as some frameworks we can use to better understand what that means and how that applies with some good examples. And so that's what I want to do in this episode. So I guess we should just get on with it. So the idea of technocracy is one that at least I can trace back to the 20s with the writings of William Henry Smith. The majority of people date it back to the early 30s out of Columbia University, and there was a technocracy movement there. So let me give you an overview of both of those. William Henry Smith was writing in the 20s after the First World War, and he saw how the country unified and how everybody was pointing towards a national goal and a national purpose, and industry was all unified around one goal with the wartime economy. Everything was going very efficiently. The majority of people were on board with this one thing. Society was fairly unified. All of these kinds of things. He also saw a lot of the hazards of, I guess, what the left would uh, put towards capitalism in today's world, but a lot of the hazards of the modern finance system, modern banking and money, and how there was a lot that revolved around money making money and these other Uh, what he termed as magic aspects of money and finance, where you're taking the future and creating things in the present based on things in the future, which uh, he said you probably shouldn't do. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. The future doesn't control the present. And if you actually just now made that connection, if you go back to Vin Armani, he did talk a lot about that, about whether the past controls the future or whether the future controls the present. And he talked about how in the next age and coming through the dim age, it's more about the future controlling the present than the or the future controlling the past than the past controlling the future. So there's probably some connections there that I don't have the time on the fly to make for you, but you can look into that yourself and think about it. But the point is that William Henry Smith saw a lot of these issues. He saw the unification that came with the World War and that economy, and he thought that this was a good thing. He was an engineer, and he thought that society should be ran in a more technological, scientific fashion. He believed that you should use data, you should use objective measures, scientific measures, and that was one of his complaints about money, where money does not have a set value at all. And so if you're measuring everything in your society and your economy off of money that has a fluctuating value, 
then that that doesn't make a lot of sense in his mind and his uh, very uh, structured engineering oriented mind. And so he compares that to a measuring stick or, you know, you'd say a tape measure or something like that, where you're measuring in whether it's inches or feet or meters or whatever you're measuring in, that has an objective value that has a set uh, distance between each one of those units of measurement and they don't change. And so that's why you can do that. And that's why you can use math and science and these kinds of things and come up with objective determinations and all of this stuff. That's how that works. But when your society and economy are based on something magical, which would be money and finance, then it can't really work that way. And so again, he believed that society should reorient towards a new system that was based around technicians, that was based around experts, not politicians. Because politicians are also, uh, they, they waver between different views, different opinions, different things that they go after. One side's going after one thing, the other side's going after the other, and it switches back and forth. And they aren't, they aren't focused on the objective data. They're not focused on the scientific method. That's not how they do things. They are much more in line with his views on money than his views on science. And so he believed that we should shift from these more magical qualities, these aspects of, of chance and mystery, and shift into something more scientific and technical. And he termed that technocracy. And as far as he was concerned or... I am concerned, or anybody else I've heard of is concerned, that is when the term was coined. Although I've never heard anyone reference William Henry Smith, I came across him by chance, and I, again, have never heard anybody talk about it. I've done a lot of research on technocracy as a whole. No one's ever gone back to him. Every single person that I've heard from that goes over the origins of technocracy starts with Columbia University. And so I'm not really sure why that is. Uh, I, I looked for an answer for that. Still don't have one. If anyone has one, then please share it with me. I would really like to know. But let's get into Columbia University. So at Columbia University, I guess there's, I'm not going to get into all the different details and all the different people. Basically, there was this technocracy movement that started to gain traction and steam. There's a group of people at Columbia that uh, liked this idea of society being run by experts versus politicians and based on technology and data and more objective and scientific methods. And so they even created this whole handbook and this whole framework for technocracy and what that looked like. They thought that it should be oriented around energy units. And so, uh, for example, how many energy units does it take to create XYZ good, and then that's how much in energy units that good costs, and that's it. It's not based on money in any modern current form. It's based on energy movements, and then, or sorry, energy units, and then what you do is you take that and apply that to an entire economy where you have some sort of resource management system at the top that allocates these units to everyone within a given population. So one idea was that you could have a North American technate 
and it would be run by um, in this fashion of technocracy. And so everybody in all of North America would then be allocated by the technate a certain number of energy units. They use those energy units to acquire the things that they need and that they want. And then they did say that there is room for a side economy for extra units and extra things, but that would be frowned upon. That's not the goal. Because what they want is to have the the technate, the, the organizing body, the head, whatever you want to call it, uh, the equivalent of our modern state and government. They wanted that to be focused solely on objective resource management where they can look at real-time data. They believed that they needed to have transaction history in real time, the names, the information, the data on every individual within that population, and all of these kinds of things, things that there was no way they could even... Uh, they could even try to have in the 30s, but they actually can have today. And so uh, that is what they believed they needed, and then they would use that to make objective decisions on what the demand was for products and resources within that population, within that economy. And so then they would allocate resources to the raw goods uh, manufacturers or collectors and to the processors and manufacturers that turn those into products and to the supply chain and all of these things. And they would be the ones who would decide how many houses are built, what types of houses are built, what type of food is grown, where that food is grown, and then where it is distributed and all of these kinds of things. And with all the data that they have, they can figure the majority of that out and then again, if they leave room for a small amount of error on either side, then they should be able to theoretically run an economy and a society based on these metrics. They can get rid of what William Henry Smith talked about as uh, aspects of chance where uh, someone can make a million dollars off of some random penny stock trade and it wasn't really anything objective. They didn't really create a million dollars worth of value. They just happened by chance to be able to get that. And those kinds of things happen all the time in our modern economy. But you can get rid of those and allocate the surplus that is created by all of that and all of these resources and all of this value that goes out to people just by chance or gets taken away from people just by chance, both of those happen. You can level out the playing field and basically allow everybody to have the same objective amount of value that they are getting and that they are creating and you can manage the entire society this way. So this is the idea of technocracy. Now, the movement did fade out after the 30s, but there, there was a pretty big push for a while. There was even a push for one of the presidents to institute technocracy. There was a, a huge group, Technocracy Inc., that got very big and was fairly influential. You have lots of people with connections back to the technocracy movement, like Elon Musk's grandfather was big in the movement. I believe he ran the movement for a time back in the day. And so it, it definitely had a lot of influence. And as you think back to the past few episodes where I've talked about this new age that we're shifting into, the age of science, 
it fits right on. It, it, that's exactly what the age of science is. It's about, it's about science. It's about the experts running things. It's a response to the corruption of the political system and modern society. And it incorporates technology and data uh, in order to control the society, the economy, the people, and that's what we're shifting into. And so technocracy, this is the framework that we are in and or going into. Now, when you look at technocracy, the way I break it down is that there are two different main ways of looking at how to apply technocracy and how to think about it. So two different frameworks that we can use. Now, one, and this should bring to memory what I talked about, about the material versus the immaterial, and talking about that with the ages of man and how those shifts occur and how we're headed into the immaterial out of a mostly material. And it's also very similar to the idea of rhizomatic versus arborescent where you have this idea of a rhizomatic perspective, like the rhizomes that are under the ground, and you can't see them, you don't know where they're going, they don't know where they're going, they just go wherever they want, they send up shoots when they want, they can be separated from each other and then still live independently, they can be reunited with each other, or united with another set of rhizomes of the same species, and become one entity. They're much more fluid, they are much less structured, much less predictable, all of these kinds of things. That's the rhizomatic, which would be more of an immaterial approach versus an arborescent. Think of a tree, where a tree has a set structure, a set hierarchy, the different things on the tree, the leaves, the branches, the trunk, the roots, they all have a specific purpose and specific meaning. They do certain things. You can visually see the tree and see how it's doing, see what it's doing, all of these kinds of things, that is a much more material perspective when you go from an arborescent perspective. And so with that, apply that to technocracy, and you have one version that is much more material and arborescent. You have another version that is more immaterial and rhizomatic. So the first one that is more material and arborescent, that's one that's focused on direct control. It's focused on the flow of data and information in a very straightforward way. There are, uh, for technology, there's computers, there's cameras, you're wearing wearables, all of these kinds of things in order to gather that data and information. And these are things that are very, again, material, straightforward. We know what they are, we see them, we know what they do, these kinds of things. It's the same with the rulers within that society, where you know who your representatives are, who your government officials are. There is a set hierarchy and structure for how that works, and all of that is fairly clear. It's fairly arborescent. Now, again, we are in a mixed time. So the age of economics is mixed between the material and the immaterial, and the same is true here, where even though we do know how the state is structured, and in America you have Congress, you have the House of Representatives, and you have all of these different aspects in your local government, and you know how that works, you know who they are, but in reality, a lot of the power, the control, the influence is behind the scenes. It's much more immaterial. And so that, that's where we are today. But uh, to focus back on the material framework here, we're talking about overall control being by the state. 
again, going back to the comparison of the Reformation, where the church had the overall control over Christendom, it's the same, where the state has the overall control over us. Even though we are in this mixed age, there is more behind-the-scenes control that's going on. From our perspective and from a broad view, the state is the supreme entity. And again, that's more arborescent, that's more material. When it comes to how individuals are viewed, each individual is an individual being governed. That's that's how you're defined within your society. You're an individual, you're under the rule of whatever the governing body is, the state, and that is your role in society. You are under the state. You are under a set of laws. These are written down laws. They are set laws. When they change, there is a whole process that's very structured and uh, translucent where you know roughly how that works. And that is the idea of something that is more material and arborescent. Now, applying that to technocracy, what I do is use some different allusions of previous writings that are fairly well known to pull out some examples of how that actually works. And those would be Machiavelli's The Prince, Orwell's 1984, and Bentham's Panopticon Writings. And so those all paint a picture of what this material example looks like. And I guess I'll go ahead and look at some of those examples fairly briefly. I guess this is a good time also for a reminder. Sorry for all the side notes here that I keep jumping all over the place on. But as a reminder, season four that we are in right now is something that is combining a lot of different material and ideas and perspectives and frameworks that I've covered in the past, but bringing it all together into a comprehensive, more macro perspective, less focused on the specific details and more focused on how these things connect, how they apply in the modern age, all of these kinds of things. And so if you want more detail on all of this, I did an entire episode just on the material version of technocracy, did a whole nother episode on the rhizomatic version of technocracy, and did more episodes related to technocracy and these whole ideas and structures. So that there is more, and I'll try to link those in the show notes. But uh, this episode currently that we are in is much, much more of an overview. So that's how I am going to treat it. Now, getting into these examples of the more material, arborescent view of technocracy, uh, Machiavelli's The Prince is one good example here, where in The Prince, he talks about how the prince should be uh, very ruthless, the prince should be very objective, the prince should put off an air of being religious and moral and these kinds of things, but definitely shouldn't actually live that out in his role as a ruler, because basically it wouldn't work. He would not be a very successful ruler as far as how Machiavelli defines success. And so what the prince needs to do is to do what needs to be done. And this is true whether it falls in line with the religion, which would be Christianity, that you claim to be a part of, or whether it doesn't, or whether it 
fits in with what overall society thinks is the right thing to do or not. That's that's not your focus. Your focus is on doing what you believe needs to be done in order for you to have maximum control, for you to have maximum power, for you to have the maximum amount of territory that you can reasonably manage, these kinds of things. And there are various ways of doing this. You can dole out benefits really slowly and one at a time in order to increase your favor with the population and make them more dependent on you. So think of like a welfare system. If you just give a population a bunch of things, say you give everybody a million dollars, then everybody's super grateful and that's wonderful, but it doesn't really help you from a power perspective. Whereas if you get people addicted to a universal basic income of $1,000 a month, then you start to have a lot more sway over that population and they are a lot more indebted to you. So not only do you gain favor, but you also gain power and control and influence. Uh, Another idea that he talks about is to be liberal with other people's resources and to be mean with your own. So that you hold your own resources uh, to yourself. You only use them when you really need to. And resources could be thought of in a very broad term, not just money, but also power and influence and sway. And then with other people's resources, you're very liberal with spending those however you feel like is going to benefit you. So think of the modern tax system where the government takes the taxes of people. It forces people to give it money and the state is very liberal with how it spends that money. But that money is somebody else's. That's somebody else's resources. And that's why they're so liberal with them. And they can do that with without having to spend hardly any of its own money. Because if you think about it, even the money that the state has that it didn't get from people is money that it's essentially taking from people. So think of printing more money or creating more money. Well, what that's doing is devaluing the money that everybody else has because you're increasing the supply. And so even if the state creates its own money without taking it from anybody else, it's still taking the value from everybody else in that society. So if you go back to the specific rulers, so you could say the the representatives of someone's specific government, they're not spending any of their personal money. They're not spending a whole lot of extra personal time aside from what is going to give them more control and more power. And that is their main focus. And so that's very Machiavellian. He talks about how you need to uh, destroy the previous rulers and take over a previous system. He says that new systems are very difficult to implement. It's really hard to just bring a society to a brand new system and do a total reset. What you really need to do is you need to start to change the old system more slowly and get rid of the old rulers so that from a an individual perspective, there is less change. It's less of a shock. It's something they're more familiar with. So instead of, for example, just switching from capitalism to communism, there's a lot of people that uh, are very stuck on that dichotomy, especially in the world of, uh, I guess, my listeners. And so with that, 
instead of going from capitalism to communism, just right off the bat, you have a new election, you have a new leader, people voted in, and all of a sudden we switch over. That's not going to go well at all. But instead of doing that, what you do is you start slowly weeding out the leaders of the old system, people that are much more free market and these kinds of things, and you start slowly shifting the system to being more focused on a... A communitarian perspective, so to say, more focused on a communist-style economy and less focused on uh, complete free market economics and more the classically liberal leaders. And so if you slowly start to shift the society towards that system, then you can get them over to the side that you want them to be in. You can be the one in control because you've weeded out the older leaders. You don't want that competition. You don't want that threat. So you totally destroy and get rid of the old regime. And you are the new regime, but it's in a system that has been changing slowly and that they are still very familiar with and it feels normal. It's been normalized for the population. So uh, that's, uh, I guess that's all I'm really going to cover as far as the prince is concerned. But uh, I think that gives you a fairly clear idea of what we're talking about here with regard to shifting towards a technocracy, shifting towards this this system. It's a new system. It's a different system. But we're not just going to switch from one to the other. That's not how it works. What you do is you slowly start to phase over and you slowly weed out the other crowd and you totally destroy them. You do what's going to give you as the technate the most amount of control. And that has been happening to a large degree. I would say that's been happening much more so than the dichotomy that a lot of people talk about between communism and capitalism. While that has been happening as well, I think that the more important thing to keep track of would be this shift between our modern system, let's say the the age of economics and the systems that have come out of that and capitalism from that perspective and what we're heading into in the age of science and technocracy. That is the shift that I believe should be focused on. Now, another example that I use for this more material arborescent approach would be 1984. Hopefully you guys are all uh, familiar with 1984 and if if not, it's a great read in the modern time, very much so. And you'll see all kinds of memes that reference it, whether you know it or not. And yes, it is definitely something to be familiar with in our current age of this arborescent technocracy. And that's exactly what 1984 is about. You have the ruling group known as the party, and that essentially is the technocracy. Now, in 1984, it's more of a political dichotomy, but uh, all in all, if you really get down to uh, how it is set up and how it's implemented and manifested, it is uh, fairly technocratic. So you have uh, this idea where there is a ruling body that's at the top. They are not elected in any way. They are just in power and the system perpetuates itself. So think of like Kaczynski's worst nightmare of the technological society that perpetuates itself over and over again. It's that to its fruition in the form of the party that has merged with the state and changed it into something else, a new system. But it, it still feels kind of familiar. It feels like a similar system and it's happened over time. 
And the way they do this is that they've done it through new technology. They've done it through gathering a lot of data and information. They've done it through massive surveillance where you're always being watched. They do it through enforcement where if you go against the party, you are automatically taken out right away and everybody knows it, but no one's going to talk about it. And so there's this fear that you've brought into society that the society feels very dependent on the party. There is a threat of war that is constantly being pushed on people. There are even rockets that are coming over and occasionally will hit a city or two. And there's this fear of the enemy that's going to kill them or destroy them, bomb them, whatever. And it's only the party that's saving us and keeping us safe. And they need all of our resources in order to fight this war and keep us safe and all this kind of stuff. So similar to today's world as well. But it's this threat of war that is always there, whether that war is real or not. And I think the idea is that it's probably not at all. And the rockets are probably more than likely false flags. But the idea is that it keeps people in this state of fear. It keeps them dependent on on the party. And the party exists apart from any uh, formalized representation, the way we would think of it. It's more along the lines of technocracy, where the people at the top are just the experts. And there is this system that... Uh, it's kind of like the bureaucracy of a corporation. It's not that the people are voted into executive roles or any other roles. It's that they use their wealth, power, and influence to gain more wealth, power, and influence. And the bureaucracy is set up in a fairly uh, kind of like a meritocracy where those that have the merit and the value are the ones that move up in their positions to the point that they then are not really qualified for their positions, usually how it works. But that is also slightly true of 1984. But this is the world that is created within 1984, and in a large way, that that's how things are happening today. We have technology, we have surveillance, we know we're always being watched. You even have this, uh, this view of time where... There is this time before the party, and before the party is a time that most people don't remember. A lot of people, it's almost like they blocked it out, and they just view the modern world under the party as the normal world and uh, as if that's the way it's always been. And that's similar to before the internet and after the internet, where people view this modern world with all of this technology and communication and all of these things as just the way it is. And of course, people remember way back in the day before the internet, but it's it's almost like people don't really relate to that very well or at all or don't want to. And people are very focused on the technological society and what's happened post-internet. And that's one of these views on time that's very similar. You also have this idealization of Big Brother, and Big Brother is a leader of the party. Big Brother may exist, may not exist. It doesn't really matter. But according to the society, Big Brother does exist. He's the one on top, and he is the supreme ruler, and he deserves it, and he is the greatest, and he deserves our loyalty, and all these you know great and wonderful things. And it's almost like the way tech entrepreneurs are idealized, where you've got these big tech entrepreneurs like, uh, let's say, Zuckerberg or Bezos or Elon Musk or whoever else, and they are idealized as being 
the ideal coming out of the age of economics, especially that they made it from nothing. They uh, made it from uh, pulling up their bootstraps and having some garage operation when they dropped out of college that turned into a multi-billion dollar you know, worldwide company. And they're so great. They did such a great job. They're the most wealthy individuals in our society, at least uh, to a degree, and uh, they are viewed in a very positive light. They are also much more focused on technology and data and more objective scientific views on things, and so they fit in with the age of science. So they're a good bridge between the age of economics and the age of science, but that is the role that the tech entrepreneurs are playing, and once you get into full technocracy, it's run by the experts. Who are the experts? Well, it's people like that. Those are the experts. And so, yes, it's it makes sense that you have some idealized and people have this view of the ideal person who is the ideal expert and they they should be the ones who make a lot more decisions, not these corrupt politicians. Again, you destroy all of your previous enemies, the previous regime. So we are totally destroying the reputation right now of politicians and the political system. That has been under attack to a large degree for the last decade at least, but definitely the whole Trump issue and Biden, especially since then, it's really taken off full force. And there is a huge lack of faith in our political system. Now, I am not going to praise our political system or say that it is good or should have you know, confidence or anything like that, but I'm just pointing out what is actually happening here. So, those are two. You have Machiavelli's The Prince. You have Orwell's 1984. Then the final one is Bentham's Panopticon. Now, with the Panopticon, you have Jeremy Bentham. He was an architect, and he created these designs for a building, a prison building, that would be able to run with very minimal staffing requirements, but even more control and more management than other current, at least in his time, prison buildings and systems. And so the idea is that he uses the architectural design in order to maximize control and management through more psychological methods. So it's the perfect example of the age of economics. It's mixed between the material and immaterial. It, it's the physical manifestation of that, where it's a material building that is designed in such a way that it has the immaterial effect of this psychological nature. And so the idea is that you have a tower in the middle, and then you have a courtyard surrounding the tower, and then you have, uh, think about in a circle probably, all of the prison cells that are around there. And I can't remember actually if it's a circle, if it's square, it doesn't really matter. But the point is that all of the cells are on multiple floors, and they all point towards this tower in the middle. So theoretically, from the tower in the middle, Someone standing in that tower and looking out, they could see every single cell in the entire prison from that vantage point. Now, not only that, but every single cell can see the tower. Now, in the tower is your uh, person, your warden, and that warden is watching out, but he can't really be seen. At most, you can see his silhouette, and so you know that he's there, and you know that he's watching, but you don't really know exactly where he's looking or who he's watching or to what degree he's staying vigilant, and so you could be being watched at any given time. You never know. 
And that's the whole idea. And because you can be being watched at any time, then that creates this psychological effect of not screwing off and not breaking the rules and that kind of stuff. Now, in addition to that, the, the warden can be heard from any point in the prison. There's a series of tubes and things like that, which nowadays, of course, it'd be speakers. But the idea is that he could speak and his voice could be heard within a cell or on a certain hallway or within the entire courtyard or whatever to give him this, this characteristic of omnipresence. The warden does bust people every now and then and makes a big scene of it, makes a big show of it, and he uses that as the example, and then people become even more wary that they're being watched, and they they censor their own actions even further. So again, that's what's going on in today's world, where you never know when you're being watched. There's cameras everywhere. There's cameras outside. There's cameras in stores. There's cameras in people's houses. And so you never know. Now, you are being watched by the technology, yes. Just like the warden has the potential to see into every cell, yes. But is someone actually monitoring your specific action at any given time with the thought of busting you if you do something wrong? Well, usually not. And the same is true with the warden. Is the warden actually looking at you at every moment when you're in your cell? Well, no, he's looking all over the place and doing his other things. And so the idea is that if you're in a store, is there a security guy that's watching the live feed of the store security camera? Well, at times, yes, especially in a big store. But again, in a big store, you might have a few hundred customers or let's say a few dozen even. He's not watching them all at the same time. So even though you are technically being watched, he could technically figure out that you're grabbing something off the shelf and stealing it. Is he likely to catch you doing that? Yeah, uh, maybe. Maybe not. We don't know. And it's that you don't know aspect that uh, if you were inclined to take something would uh, give you much more hesitance to actually take it because there's a camera right there and they could easily bust you. And you don't know if they actually would or not, but they could. And it's the same with internet activity. So when you are using the internet, there are various algorithms and data collection schemes and all kinds of things that are always gathering your internet history and what you're doing and uh, the transactions that you're participating in. So think about how most transactions are electronic. Those transactions are in a database, whether it be in a bank or a store or probably both, and then possibly gathered together and sold off to different companies with credit agencies and all kinds of stuff. All of this information is out there. You are being watched and monitored on basically everything you do. They can even backtrack and go back to previous history of all of this monitoring. And so what does this do? Well, it creates the same psychological aspect of having you self-censor your actions, your behaviors, what you say, what you do. And that's the idea. But it's done in a very straightforward, more arborescent material way. So it's this idea of... You know what the technology is. You know what it does. You can even usually see it, and it's very clear. Uh, just like in 1984, they have these TV screens, and you're being watched through them, and messages and propaganda are coming through that TV. It's the same way with having a wearable or having your phone that you pull out and you pull up Facebook. Well, how does Facebook work? Well, we all know what they do is it's free because you are the product. <laughs> your data is the value there, and they take your data, they sell it off, and that's how they make money. And so with this, 
it's it's the same idea. It's just applied in a modern way. And so when you combine all of these aspects from the prints, from 1984, from Panopticon, put all those together in the modern technological society, that that is the material arborescent technocracy that we are in and headed into or heading out of, whatever. It's a fairly fluid time frame we're in here. And just like with the ages of man, there is no set cutoff. You know, it's not that, you know, once they killed Harambi, that gorilla, that all of a sudden everything went haywire, even though it kind of did, that there, there is not an actual, like, timeline break where after this point in time, then we're officially here and not there and whatever. That's not really how this works. It's fairly fluid. And so that is the first version of technocracy. And as you can tell, in a large way, we are already there. We are much more managed and governed and influenced through these aspects of technocracy than through previous ways from decades ago. And a lot of that has to do with the influence of the technology. Again, going back to the Reformation parallel, the influence of the printing press, it was that technology that enabled the Reformation, a lot of those societal changes, and it's the same way today. And so... That that would then bring us to the next version, and this would be the more rhizomatic version. So instead of having direct control, now it's about uh, controlling thought and ideas and the culture. So this is the more immaterial rhizomatic perspective. It's it's not as much about a straightforward data grab. It's more about social engineering. It's more about uh, these these ideas of of genetics and genetic alteration and manipulating um, whether it be the biological or the technological using those things to control the environment to control people the rulers and influencers are less known so it's not that you actually know who's calling all the shots you just know that yeah there are shots being called and you're a part of this bigger thing bigger than yourself. And uh, again, the idea for technocracy is that the overall control is by some obscure technocratic council of elite experts, whatever. And on a material level, that might be an actual council where people physically meet and you know who those members are. But in the more immaterial version, the rhizomatic version, it's uh, unknown. It's more like... Uh, the party brought into the technological society where it's less known who the people are. It's just known that there are elites, there are experts, and they're the ones handling things, and they've got this, we don't need to worry about it kind of a thing. And as far as you as an individual, you are a part of a society that's building unity. It's not that you're an individual being governed by somebody. It's you are uh, becoming more and more one with society. You're one of the members of this larger group. And, you know, it's not about being ruled. It's about being a part of this unified body. And when you're a part of the social body, that that is something that is very different than you being an individual that's being told what to do and what not to do. Uh, Again, these are very different approaches here, but they shift. It's, again, going back to the prince, it's not that one system is totally ended and another one starts right up. It's that they shift from one into the other. So you're going to see aspects of this next version in modern society as well because they exist. Now, the examples that I use are Plato's Republic, um, Brave New World, and Asimov's Foundation series. 
these are all good examples of some of these aspects of an immaterial rhizomatic technocracy being implemented, some examples of that, and ones that we can relate to with the modern technological society and the beginning of the social body. So I, I guess, well, I don't know if Brave New World, no, it's not the first example, so we won't go there yet. So uh, Plato's Republic, we can go there. The idea with Plato's Republic is that you have a society that's ruled by what he calls philosopher kings. These are people that are the ultimate experts. They have a lot of information and knowledge and expertise and many different subjects. They're not just isolated into one field, like maybe the prince might be isolated into the field of politics and related things. The philosopher kings know all about mathematics. They know about the natural systems, they know about philosophy, they know about all different kinds of things, and they use their expertise in order to steer a society very well through social engineering, where they can control the society through things like genetics, where they have breeding programs of sorts, but it's not a straightforward breeding program. It's not that they tell people, you are going to sleep with this person, and you guys are going to have an offspring, and then we're going to keep track of all these offspring, then these offspring will breed together. It's not like that. What they do is they uh, they modify the culture. They modify uh, the existence and the way the social body works, where you have the more elite people that they gather together at a fairly young age within a culture where um, there's nothing wrong with partnering together with some random stranger or someone you meet or something temporary. They don't marry. They're not monogamous. They don't even raise their own children. The social body raises all the children together. And so with this, that when you pair these people together that you want to breed amongst each other, you just put them together in a certain area where they spend a lot of time together, then naturally that's probably what's going to happen. They're going to breed together. It's the same idea that a lot of the elite families had with the start of more of the elite colleges, especially in America, but also in uh, what's now the UK, where uh, the elites had this view where if we send our kids to this elite school, they're only going to be around a bunch of other elite kids from elite families. And so so then they'll breed together and uh, we can be intermingled and stay within this upper echelon of the elite class and not be entwined with the lower classes. And so a lot of it's class-based, yes. But uh, that is an idea that comes from you know more modern history. But going back to Plato's Republic, it's it's the same theory. It's the same idea. And so again, it's it's similar to the Panopticon of incorporating some of these psychological aspects into the physically manifested versions. But it's it's even more immaterial. It's even more focused on the social engineering end and not a physical building or representation. And so that's what Plato viewed as being uh, the way to do things. He, he thinks that information is a very, very important aspect, that controlling information and what ideas people are exposed to is one of the most important aspects of controlling a society. So the idea here is that you don't want people exposed to ideas of rebellion or ideas of corruption at the top or ideas of, uh, uh, I guess, like major individuality. You want people to relate to the social body, to be a part, to be unified. You want them to look up to, in a positive way, 
those experts, the philosopher kings at the top in the elite class. You want them to be a certain way. And if you start introducing ideas or allow them to be exposed to ideas that have them thinking a different way, then that could be a threat to this unified society that you're building and managing. And so censorship and control of information is a very, very big deal, especially in the realm of what he called music. So that would be books and uh, what we view as music, songs, things like that, as well as poems and stories, all kinds of things like this, art, all of this. So if you think in modern times, that would be the culture, the arts, and controlling the arts, whether it be Hollywood or whether it be uh, postmodern art or whether it be any number of things, uh, video games, all of these kinds of things could probably be thought in that broad spectrum of what Plato would have called music. And you do see that those things are being used to implement social engineering and control society and change the culture. Like that is what's being used. It's the media. It's it's the movies, it's the video games, it's the literature, it's all of this stuff. This is what's being used. And uh, that's exactly what Plato says to do. And so there's a lot more to Plato's Republic that I am definitely not going to get into. Again, I've done plenty of episodes. I've done more on Plato's Republic than just about anything. So uh, there's probably five or six different episodes you can get much more information on. But as it relates to this, that should be a good introduction into this idea of the immaterial rhizomatic technocracy. That's how it's applied. So if you go into the idea of Brave New World as the next example, that's where you have this idea of the social body. And so everyone belongs to everybody else. And we're all a part of this wonderful society, this wonderful social body. There are no rulers. There's no government. There's no uh, set of arbitrary laws. We all want what's best for everybody else. And we all act kindly towards everyone else. And we're not selfish. We don't hold anything back, even our own selves and our own bodies. And again, there's no monogamy. People aren't married. That's viewed very poorly. Children are not raised by their parents, mothers and fathers. A lot of similarities to uh, Republic. It's, it's a technologically implemented version of Plato's Republic, in my opinion. And so that's what's going on in Brave New World. You have centralized control over class and skill as well, and specifically through genetics. So again, genetics and breeding and manipulating these things in order to get people into certain categories and certain classes, keeping the classes separate, but keeping them happy and satisfied within their class. And that even goes back to a principle from the prince, but uh, applied in Brave New World, it's this idea that each class has its role. They have been bred in a more technological way where it's in an artificial womb kind of a thing and they control the genetics, but they have been bred in order to have certain skills, to be in a certain class, these kinds of things. You have the alphas and the betas and the gammas, I believe, if I remember right. But the idea is that they have fulfillment in their job and they enjoy what they do and they have been psychologically conditioned and indoctrinated through their education system to fit well into this class that they are getting put into and uh, they are steered towards and they are just socially restricted to. That's just the way this whole, again, this whole very immaterial system is set up so that it's not that uh, this person goes here and does this and they have this heritage and all this stuff and it's not very clearly laid out and structured and hierarchical in that way. It's that this is just the way the social body is and we all want to be a part of it and so we do. And uh, again, it's much more immaterial, psychological, that kind of stuff. And so 
That's the idea here for Brave New World. Now, Brave New World introduces an interesting concept that I do draw from some as well on what do you do with people that don't want to have anything to do with this system. So even if you implement this slowly, and even if you get the majority of people on board, there's still people that don't want this that don't want it at all. And you can't condition, you can't indoctrinate them into it. You can't even slowly start to guide them into this. They're not going to have it. And those are the people that are going to be the most disruptive, even if it's only 1%, even if it's only 0.1%, you cannot have that if you want a well-functioning social body that's very unified, aside from using that as the external threat that we're all afraid of. And uh, that gives the um, the controllers even more control. Um, and so what they do is they kind of combine the two. Um, uh, with Plato's, or sorry, with Orwell's 1984, you have this threat coming from the outside of some outside people group, some outside nation or um, technate or whatever that you have physical missiles coming in and explosions and people know about the war kind of a thing. In Brave New World, what they do is they have these reserves for the savages, the people that still live in an old world way. And old world will be uh, similar to our modern age, or I guess a little bit before our modern age, maybe a few decades ago. And that's how people live, which is very different than the way people live in the social body within the uh, new Brave New World that is created in that universe. And so... With this, you have these reserves of savages living the way we live, where they are monogamous. They they do have a capitalism to an extent. Um, they do uh, have these different roles, and they have individuality and all of these kinds of things that don't really exist in the new, brave new world. And so they are viewed as savages. And they even come on vacations. Uh, the people within the social body can go out to the reserves and see the the savage humans and their natural environment and what they're doing with wedding ceremonies and consumerism and materialism and all kinds of things like this. And it's, it's very interesting. And so the, with this, it's this idea that oh, there's those people. They are the outsiders. They are the crazy people. You know, of course, we wouldn't want to be anything like them. We don't want them to have anything to do with us. We are very separated. That unifies people even more into the social body and away from those ideas that are more individualistic and uh, things of that nature and less oriented towards social body. And so it brings in even more unification. And so that would be the Brave New World example there, or at least part of it. The final one would be Asimov's Foundation. And since I'm running low on time, this will be the shortest. So basically, within the Foundation universe, uh, it is a whole universe where there's galaxies and you have different planets and it all was unified under one galactic empire. And then um, through... Uh, I guess through psychohistory, which is basically looking at history, uh, bringing it down on a scientific level to specific data points that happen, seeing the patterns and mathematically representing them. And in doing so, you can predict at least on a macro scale what's going to happen in the future because you can scientifically and mathematically show what's happened in the past and how these patterns play out and how certain trends always seem to lead to a certain place or not always seem to, they just always do. And so he mathematically 
uh, basically imprinted a framework that could then predict into the future what was going to happen within this empire and all these different planets and civilizations and these kinds of things. And it was only something that could be used on a very macro level with very large populations. It wasn't predicting every single aspect of the future. But with this, he saw the fall of the empire and he saw that there was going to be this long time of, say, dark ages where uh, things weren't going well, and he wanted to minimize this, and he found a way that if he could implement a few data points, that this time could be shortened very dramatically to just a few thousand years, if I remember right. And so he uh, worked on setting up these foundations that were groups of people in these small societies that basically he got started up to achieve a certain goal and to be structured a certain way that would then naturally follow a trend line and follow a pattern that would influence the broader history of the entire galaxy and would uh, change the mathematical formula and the output for psychohistory into a much more favorable outcome. And so that's what he did. Now, these foundations weren't ruling like the entire galaxy or even whole planets in general. These foundations started off as these tiny little like colonies pretty much. And so it wasn't, again, a material arborescent type thing where they ruled everything. Um, it was something much more rhizomatic where they would have this influence that would spread and these effects that would alter the outcome on a broad level of these societies as history started to progress. Now, we did do two foundations and slight spoiler alert. If you have not read them, if you want to, then end the episode here or skip ahead 30 seconds or something. But he set up two foundations. One was more material, and the idea was that in time, over maybe a few hundred years, that foundation would start to replace the old um, gal galactic empire. And so they would start off with one planet that the colony was on, and he saw that as everything broke down and fell apart, and you'd have warlords start to take over, that because of the technology that the Foundation had and the information that they had that he set them up with, that they would then naturally ally with some close-by planets and civilizations, and they would take a ruling position, and they would start to grow that and all of this kind of stuff. So again, think more material, more arborescent, more hierarchical in time, but... He set up a second foundation whose only goal was to steer things according to this uh, this timeline of psychohistory that he was trying to uh, achieve. And so this second foundation was working behind the scenes through wealth, power, and influence behind the scenes where no one even knew about it. There were there at times were rumors of a second foundation, but I don't know if at any time it actually was well known that there was even the existence of a second foundation, much less that they were the ones steering everything. And so again, this is this idea of the technate, the experts, the people behind the scenes that are steering everything through things like genetics and technology. Now, there is also a genetic component where everyone that made up the second foundation had a certain genetic abnormality, and there was uh, yeah, stuff I'm not going to get into related to that. And in addition to that, 
they did have all the technology uh, from the old Galactic Empire. And with that, they could then use that technology. So it was the genetics, it was the technology, it was the social engineering that they were doing all behind the scenes. It's this whole idea of the more immaterial rhizomatic technocracy. And so that's really the idea. And uh, those are the two versions of technocracy that, that I would classify as being different but as both being things that we are probably headed into in the age of science, that we are probably heading out of this more material, more arborescent aspect of technocracy. And again, it's not completely because, again, we are in a mixed age or coming out of that mixed age of economics. Now, if technocracy would have taken hold at a different time period, maybe in a more material age, then maybe that would have played out in a more arborescent approach. But again, take the idea of psychohistory. We can see the patterns. We can mathematically uh, put them onto a framework and see how this typically plays out on a very macro perspective. And that's what we're doing here with the ages of man and with these trends that, that we're going over here. And so with this, we are... We are this mixed technocracy now that is more material and arborescent hierarchical that is more oriented towards the state and global organizations and these types of things. And that is about surveillance and overt technology and these kinds of things. But we still have individuality. We still have national sovereignty. We still have capitalism. We still have consumerism, materialism. We still have these things. They haven't gone away yet. But as things shift, they will go more and more into the background as you have communitarianism and the social body and these influencers behind the scenes and this more immaterial technocracy, uh, the censorship that you don't know about and you don't see, the surveillance that you're not aware of, these kinds of things, using algorithms uh, to do their own version of psychohistory and implement that onto a social engineering plan in order to steer the social body. Like, this is what we're headed into. And so, uh, again, there is no time frame that I can give you for all this, but, but that's where we're going. And so uh, I, I believe that as we've approached this point in season four of this podcast and in this point of the technological society, we can look at all these trends. We can see the technology. We can see the impacts. We can learn from Kaczynski. We can learn from Plato. We can learn from these works of fiction, this dystopian fiction. We can uh, learn from actual historical events, the Reformation and the fall of Rome, all of these things. We can look at all of this and we can see where we are, where we're going, better understand it, and that's where we are. And that's pretty much where this episode ends. But as I get into the rest of season four, which we're kind of, uh, I guess, approaching the end of season four, we're more near the back end than the front end, then I want to uh, get into some of the things that I talked about in the interim time between season two and three, but then also I need to get into season three. And both of those, aside from the interviews that I've already covered in the last full episode, both of those things, the rest of the interim and the uh, rest of season three, they're both more about uh, what do we do about it and what are the alternatives. 
So I, I did some episodes on my own views on investing, on cryptocurrency, on homesteading and what I'm doing homesteading, on starting an agorist group or a freedom cell or whatever you want to call it, mutual assistance society or group. Um, all of these things. So there's a lot of things that we can do. There's an alternative perspective. And I use the example of the early church for this, where they had a different method. They had a different way. You can even implement that onto something akin to this technocracy framework. What does that look like? And I, I'll do that as well. So that, that's where we're headed, getting more into the application of the alternatives versus the macro view of where we're headed as the technological society progresses. And so that's what's coming up in the next few episodes. I did have a request to do the homesteading aspect uh, sooner rather than later. That is the one main request that I got and then a few more vague ones. So if you do have any more requests, then please do send it my way at rfoundations at protonmail.com. You can reach me for any comments, questions, concerns, anything whatsoever. Please reach out. If you're willing to support the show, that is extremely helpful really means a lot. You can do so on Patreon or Subscribestar or directly with cryptocurrency or heck, I'll give you my address. You can mail some cash, whatever you want to do. I don't really care. But if you want to and are willing to support the show, then please do so. And those of you that are, thank you very, very, very much. I will try to put up another section from the book I'm writing on Patreon and Subscribestar. I'm doing some previews of a book that I'm going through that really relates to content that's coming up. And so that that should release soon. And I'll, I'll let you know next week if I did get that out and remind you. So keep an eye out there as well. And I guess that's everything that I have. So until next time, I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.